America faces a multitude of challenges, including intergenerational poverty, an opioid epidemic, overcrowded prisons, the breakdown of nuclear families, capable yet unemployed men, political tribalism, and the loss of institutions of civil society. Could character be the solution? When looking to influence behavior, could a focus on the principles of character bring about greater change? Ann Snyder explores the transformative power of institutions committed to character-driven development on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? We're honored today to be joined by the author of The Fabric of Character, Anne Snyder. Anne is the director of the Character Initiative at the Philanthropy Roundtable and a fellow at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, a Houston-based think tank that explores how cities can drive opportunity and social mobility for their citizens. Anne's also been published regularly on the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, and many other national journals. Anne, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Your book is just an extraordinary look uh, at this issue of character. So often I think people hear character today and they sort of get a little glazed over, not quite sure Mm -hmm. what that is anymore. Tell us about the genesis of this book. Why character and why now? So I was actually tasked to, or I was invited to think about this question explicitly by the Philanthropy Roundtable back in early, well, late 2015, early 2016. My career up to that point had kind of my writing world. I'd always been interested in questions of sort of how one's culture and context shapes one's moral aspirations and uh, kind of moral instincts. And um, they got a hold of me and said, look, we have a growing group of people in the donor community, big foundations, medium, small, who are increasingly concerned that we're no longer like the Boy Scout country, YMCA, and and, uh, just more broadly, we've lost a lot of the sort of widely shared institutions that form people, um, especially outside of schools. So um, I think back in the 90s, I mean, I feel like every 10 years, there's sort of a character revival, but it tends, at least in in my lifetime, has tended to be only through the prism of education. Mm -hmm. So while the roundtable really respected the role that schools can play in moral formation, um, we're interested in throwing kind of a broader net. So they asked me to think about what what, um, would it look like to cast a vision specifically for the philanthropic community to think wisely and frankly think, yeah, just better about what it means to support, if not strengthen existing character building institutions and or build new ones. Um, So it was like a very huge question. And I had to play both sort of liaison between understanding how donors think, particularly donors of, say, a generation above age 65 years old who have a certain Mm -hmm. memory of America. um, And then what's actually on the ground today, um, all while in some ways (laughs) going on my own journey of trying to figure out, well, why do I care about this? Why do I care about it today? (laughs) I find it so fascinating that here you have the philanthropy roundtable uh, where people who, you know, give away large sums of money to all kinds of different institutions, all in the hope of doing good, of making a difference, of lifting people up. I I just find it fascinating that they were intrigued of, is, is there a better place for us to invest our money? Is there a better way to make a difference in society? Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me how you grappled with that and uh, and where that led you. 
Yeah, um, it's a really great question. I mean, and it kind of gets at my my somewhat renegade approach to this. There are, I mean, hopefully philanthropy in general is doing more good than harm, although there are many debates out there running today as to, <laughs> right. as to you know, whether that's true. Character is interesting on a number of levels from a philanthropic perspective because it's more mysterious. In my view, it's very, it's nature, it's very holistic, it's very core to who we are as human beings, and it's universal. There's something about it, how it, in some ways, almost however you define it, mm-hmm. that anyone from any walk of life should be able to care about because, um, I mean, that famous saying, character is destiny, is, uh, I think has proven to be true over and over and over again, both for individuals and for civilizations, for societies. And while I honor all the you know, smart philanthropic work that's being done, name your sector, economic development, neighborhood safety, education, um, you know, poverty, name name your sort of issue, veterans work. What appealed to me about character and how philanthropists could think about it was that it, it kind of gets to the deeper levels of how we're how we're motivated, how we how we relate to others, how we build or don't build trust, what we allow ourselves to trust so that we submit ourselves, say, to an institution that we come to fall in love with that seems healthy, that we therefore allow to shape shape our character. Right. And it seemed to kind of I'm not saying character is a solution for everything. And right. <laughs> um, this book tries this book tries to say that there's sort of a depth of the nature of character, but it's not purely an individual faculty, like it's or it's formed in the context of relationships and things outside of ourselves. But I just thought there was something about it that was immediately it just intrigued me. Like this is this it's sort of like philosophy in the liberal arts. Like it kind of gets to the foundations <laughs> of everything. Right. Um and can donors how do you pair something so deep and so profound and kind of all-encompassing with dollars and cents. And that continues to be a question that I haven't fully answered, so right. maybe a lifelong vineyard. <laughs> right. Well, as part of your your study and your, your work on the book, you, you went to a, a host and a really a wide range of, of institutions, and you, you talk about kind of the organizational guide to character formation, um, and we can mm-hmm. talk about some of those different things. Um, but I, I want to start with one particular institute, because it's right here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it's uh, one that yeah. I happen to be a big fan. It's actually the first time I met you was standing outside uh, of the Other Side Academy, uh, who yeah. does some extraordinary work. So tell us, one, how you connected there, and then what you found as you started to uh, uh, to engage with their approach, uh, a really interesting approach in terms of people who've been uh, in and out of the prison system. Yeah, well, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, and I think when we met, I might have had tears in my eyes because <laughs> I was so moved by I, um just the whole the whole community. Um, I learned about the Other Side Academy through actually just an acquaintance. I, I think I met him once before. Um, won't mention his name, but he's now work. He actually has a connection with Deseret News, but he he now I think works in the uh, Governor of Utah's office. And we reconnected at a uh, like a it's actually an interesting thing called the Faith Angle Forum, which mm-hmm. tries to equip journalists to report more intelligently and with nuance on religion on religion and religious communities. Kind of give them a theological yes. language. And it was in that context he heard about what I was doing, caught up um, professionally, and I talked about all this character, this, you know, exploration I was, and I was traveling everywhere, and he said, you know what, you have to come out to Utah uh, because, well, for many reasons, not least of which is the beauty and the <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> all the like, good stuff. wonderfully thick <laughs> social capital we have out here, but my wife and I, he said, um, we recently moved uh, homes in-state, and um, we just had this incredible moving experience with this company that was so much 
much more than a moving company. And we, we found it because they had like five-star Yelp reviews and every review was not just praising their punctuality and comprehensiveness and how well they took care of our things, but also just some, some other, some deeper qualities that you don't usually see in sort of a corporate, you know, compliment. And uh, it turns out we had the best experience of our life. Turns out they're the number one rated moving company in Utah. And when we found out more about them, they're this... Uh, they're this group of uh, former criminals, many of whom have spent up to, well, some of whom have spent up to 20 years in right. jail or prison, and most go through five, 10 years. So anyway, he said all this, and I didn't know much more than that, but I was immediately intrigued. So bought a ticket and went out to Salt Lake City and spent a couple days with me. Um, and then the whole, just I got, I ate there, sort of saw their way of life. A bunch of the students took me around, and it's, it's, I will say, like, I walked in the door, and the very first moment I shook the hands of some of the students, um, I almost had to look away. You know, I'm coming in as sort of a journalist in this mode, and I'm meant to be just pure inquiry and uh, take it all in. But I, as a human as a human being there, frankly, um, I just don't think I've ever felt more morally humbled in my life. Like, just yeah. the level of eye contact, self-respect, humility, respect for me, um, just, like, so much integrity combined with, um, a desire to serve one another in this very tight knit, very unique community. It was, um, it's hard to describe, but I was like, I don't meet anyone in the real world in the free, so-called like free world beyond these halls who comport themselves this way. I feel like I'm seeing, you know, something from a previous, I don't know if it was from a previous time, but so it's basically an amazing, uh, rehabilitation community for men and women who spent time in and out of jail. And they, uh, they'll say things like, you know, the problem that our population faces is not fundamentally addiction. It's fundamentally disconnection. Um, And they, through a series of principles and actually very physical monuments, like they have this bench that uh, you come into and sit down on when you're being interviewed. That bench is both a symbol to your your beginning to your your life there, life of hard knocks, of peer-to-peer accountability, of hard work. But anytime, say, you break the communities and you know, you, you, you incur an infraction, you, you disobey the rules, you're sent back to that bench as a kind of purgatory where you get to reconsider whether you want to go back to your life on the streets or really embrace the future. They have these rituals that they call games, which don't sound fun to me, but <laughs> yeah. um, probably Not all my of kind of game. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just like really hardcore accountability where the students really get in one another's faces over, um, you know, they all observe each other in close quarters uh, every day. And I, I think it's once a week or maybe once once every two weeks, um, they all come together in a group, and it's you know it's gradated by freshmen to seniors, so people who have different levels of experience inside this community, and they correct one another, and they 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 both encourage and exhort when they feel like one of them has really it, their view is like um, I mean the religious way of putting it maybe that sin breaks relationship, but that any sort of um, any way in which you try to go back to your former life or try to um, take a shortcut around our rules here, or say maybe talk to a member of the opposite sex when in during hours when you're really not supposed to be doing that all of that actually breaks like the transcendent norms of the community and it's hurting relationships so they kind of go at each other around right, that right. they call it 200% accountability <laughs> so I could go on but it was just it was I think what struck me about it aside from just watching physically people's lives change and if you look at before and after photos of people who come in as freshmen and then people who leave as seniors or who choose to stay on a little longer it's just even their countenance Mm-hmm. is so changed. It was just amazing to be in a place of people who, where people had at one point in their lives been so obviously broken 
um, and I sort of believe we're all broken, but they're sort of are the most dramatic instances of that, who are now in this community that is so morally coherent. And it's like the the community of the Other Side Academy is, compared to the mainstream world, is profoundly like morally self-confident as a community because they have a set of sort of ideals beyond themselves they've all agreed to submit to. And yet each individual is very, they know who they are in the community, but they're quite humble as individuals and they, they don't deny who they once were. So that combination of individual humility and communal moral confidence, mm. self-confidence was just, I don't know, I, I, I want to take them to every organization <laughs> and just have them teach the world yeah, how to be. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember uh, there was one city council meeting as they were trying to expand their facility there, and, and uh, one of the, the members of the council just couldn't quite wrap their head around, you know, having uh, all of these people who had been, you know, in and out of prison over and over and over, people who, you know, normally couldn't, you know, stay out of a fight inside a prison for 15 minutes, and... And the the council person said, "So you're you're telling me that that all these people there's there's no guards, there's no security, there's no camera, there's no shackles, there's no you know solitary confinement room, and you're telling me all of these people are just going to work and do the right thing and have you know show great character." And uh, and and Joseph Green said, "Yes," and she said, "Well, how 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 could I possibly believe? What do you do to get them to do this?" And uh, mm-hmm. and Joseph just didn't even miss a beat. He said, "We asked them." And yeah. and it was that idea that when we ask them to live with character, uh, people mm. do have that innate. And then, it, as you said, uh, Anne, in terms of creating a culture uh, that supports that, uh, really is yeah. transformative. Yeah. Well, let's let's look at some of the other organizations that uh, that you explored, uh, and maybe in the context of this, you can share maybe some of those uh, key elements that you found in organizations that are are really creating that kind of transformation through character. Because uh, it's 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 a to me, it was fascinating to go through just the the range of organizations that you explored uh, as you were pursuing mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So yeah, I I really cast a wide net, which at times was um, I felt like I was drowning in a Pacific. <laughs> Ocean. <laughs> I bet. But, um, the, the, you know, the, the underlying premise is that we're always being formed. It doesn't just, our character doesn't stop being developed at age 18. Um, and so every place where we spend time, you know, and devote our energy and have relationship and give of ourselves is a chance to be chiseled. So therefore, I felt like I kind of had to look everywhere, <laughs> including workplaces and including even some for-profit companies and um, sort of a separate conversation. But um, I, I chose, I mean, I went to hundreds of both places. Uh, regionally and and organizations across almost every sector um, and just decided to feature a limited group that um, I thought emphasized some of the most crucial, just, well, embodied what it meant to be a community of character that was itself its own sort of city on a hill, Mm -hmm. even as each of the individuals who felt a member of that community, be it a school, company, a rehab community, or in some sense, I had to be a little sensitive to today's philanthropic default question, which is always, does it scale? So I was looking at also, like, what That's is there right. anything out there that I believe could be effective that scales? And so some of the others include um, a place called the Oaks Academy that uh, is just a very unique school that combines both a classical education, this is in Indianapolis, with a highly diverse 
student body. Um, so it's like diverse both socioeconomically and racially, ethnically. And they really excel in forming habits of virtue formation. And they, they kind of do this by way of an underlying philosophy that says each child is a person. They don't come in as blank slate. You, uh, beauty is really important. Um, you do not engage in behavioral manipulation. You, you sort of incent, you sort of capture their desires and their innate affections. There's another organization that in some ways is more of a logic of neighboring than really just a nonprofit. It's called Community Renewal International. It's, it's gone global. And it started in Shreveport, Louisiana, one of the most historically sort of very high, very racially tense um, parts of uh, the South. Um, and through sort of intentional, uh, what the founder of it, Mac McCarter, calls a system of relationships where you have, it's kind of a reincarnation of um, the settlement house movement of mm. the early 20th century, yeah. if you know that. But there's like block leaders on every street that take responsibility for social occasions and reaching out to neighborhoods across town. Everyone in the city of Shreveport, not everyone, but it's like a city of a little over 300,000. Right now, I think something like 52 to 55,000 uh, residents uh, identify as part of the We Care team, which sounds maybe a little like Oprah, but it's actually <laughs> a very real identity of people feeling like they are civically engaged. They care about the future of their city. They care about one another. They it, There's just a highly civically healthy um, atmosphere that's emerged. And so they don't, they don't, they didn't come to me saying, oh, we're a character building organization, but I discovered them because I was also interested in sort of social fabric repair. And they just have a, a deep, deep philosophy that suggests like, you're never, you're never formed alone. And it was just neat to see both kids, whole families, adults of all ages transformed by relate, learning to trust and relate to those very differently from them, learning to serve one another. So anyway, those are just a few, a few examples of of narratives that are, or of organizations that are teased out in the book. Wonderful. But in the midst of all of it, I just started, it was not so much, well, definitely from these six that are featured, but, but, but also from the dozens of others I went to, um, I started to hear this like repeated patterned vocabulary in terms of how many of the leaders of these organizations or even participants, um, be they employees or people who are being served by the organization, how they spoke about the underlying logic. And um, I just thought, well, this is so interesting. Like those organizations that people really come to trust, that pe- that that have a healthy culture, that kind of in their own way start to form, you know, what someone once called a beloved community, they um, have certain things in place. And I decided to enshrine them in a set of questions that, I mean, I secretly hope might go viral a little bit, but questions that both donors I'm trying to give donors better questions to ask of their grantees to evaluate what is actually building people's character and what isn't instead of just like measuring how much grit someone has or how much, you know, so I'm trying to give them more of an institutional vocabulary. But I also hope these questions might help a leader like Joseph Grenny or actually there's an interest from people in Congress uh, to the religious community. Anyone who's in a position of overseeing um, kind of a community that cares to have an effect on all of like, well, cares both to draw and sustain the goodwill and the best efforts of its members, but also um, form them. Um, I just found these characteristics in common, and I'm hoping that people can find them usable. So we can go through them if yeah, you want. Or yeah, let's, let's do that. I, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated to uh, to hear how you uh, landed on these 16 questions in particular, uh, because I, I think they are one. I think they're they're powerful not only in terms of someone who is looking to you know to donate philanthropic dollars uh, towards a good cause. Uh, but these are, I, as I went through them, I started thinking, okay, am I doing this at home? 
Am I doing this at mm-hmm. work? Am I doing this in my faith community? Uh, these are these are great questions for really the character and the culture of any organization, but particularly uh, if you're in an organization that's really trying to make a difference. So let's let's dive in. Let's let's go through the first four um, and maybe sure. just kind of a rapid fire and and uh, maybe an example here and there. Let's let's start with number one there. Yeah. So number one is probably the fanciest word I use. <laughs> um, t- I call it Tila, yeah. which is just trying to get at sort of the profound why. I, I you know I ask like does does your does your organization have a clear strong reason for existing in the world that's embraced and pursued by all of its members? Does it give its members organizing criteria for what to love? So this is kind of paramount, and I think it's actually true for individuals thinking mm-hmm. about their moral commitments. Like who do you marry? What job do you? Yeah. What career path do you want to go down? You know what do you believe? But there, I think in general in society these days, and I'm not really allowed to pontificate, but <laughs> there is a bit of a telos crisis. Like a lot there of people about very busy days, not really understanding the underlying why. And uh, I even think I nationally, you see a huge poverty of fluency, or even certainly this poverty of agreement on what is the reason, you know, what animates the U.S. And people disagree on that, um, which is fine. But I think there needs to be like a deep probing into any sort of collective. Yes. <laughs> um, why do we exist? And I, I, tr- I try to give examples um, later on in the book when I flesh out each of these questions of, you know, strong, here's a strong why. And they t- it tends to, in my experience, it tends to be, frankly, uh, especially I would say faith-based organizations tend to have um, kind of a leg up in this realm because they, they're naturally oriented to think about the transcendent sure. aims more mm-hmm. than you're at, say, just a secular organization. Like, um, But I still think it applies to like even a GE or a sure. all-state no, insurance absolutely. or something, yeah. you know? Absolutely does. And it goes beyond mission statements are part of it, but it goes to like a deeper sense of this is what like Wake Forest University, which is featured in the book, will say we exist to cultivate the whole person. And then you get into, well, what do you mean by that? But sort of everyone who's hired there, any student who applies there, even custodial staffers in their interviews, they have flooded all of their you know, institutional sort of decision making with that as the overarching end. And I think if they didn't have that, I mean, I talked to many colleges and college presidents, and it's very, it's, it's sort of immediately obvious when, when especially a university um, is kind of struggling with its strategy or should it buy this land or, you know, name your issue. (laughs) If they, if they don't have, it becomes very obvious if they don't actually know who they are. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think understanding that why, uh, is is so vital and it, and it leads to that culture uh, as as you said with the with the college you know to, for even the custodial staff to to understand the compelling why uh, we always joke around here that uh, you know that uh, that culture eats strategy for breakfast <laughs> you know you, you can have yes. a, you can have a great yeah. strategy but without a real compelling why and a culture uh, it just doesn't okay. go all right let's look at number two second question number two um, I call it liturgies and rituals is there a covenant or a creed that is affirmed regularly as a community in word and deed? Are there communal rhythms, routines, and rituals? So kind of alluded to this with the other side academy, but that's a perfect example of they have these regular kind of accountability sessions. They have actual physical sort of symbols that are part of every student's and the whole community's life, the bench, mm-hmm. the bridge when they graduate to the outer world. Um, 
there's a certain, I think, regular affirmation of the 12 beliefs that permeate the Other Side Academy. Right. So that's, that's an example. Um, you know, there's some colleges, again, these would tend to maybe have some faith or sacred flavor to them or sacred origins, but they might have like a chapel every week where the whole campus comes together and flows sure. together. Uh, you know, I think they're honestly, I'm, I'm thinking even like a, this is maybe a dumb example, but um uh, like Southwest Airlines kind of can have some of it. I happen to have <laughs> Southwest <laughs> Airlines is actually a very interesting for profit. They are, yes. Character. <laughs> for sure. Um, but a, a very obvious example of the military. And um, in fact, early on in a lot of this work, my three main sort of institutions of inspiration to think about character formation historically was the U.S. military, was the church and all of its variations mm-hmm. uh, or, or religious institutions generally, and was um, uh, sort of communities for those who have been, who have been very deeply broken with through addiction or through whatever so and the military is you know you've got taps you you honor you honor your fellow comrades who have fallen in a certain kind of way there's like it's thick with ritual so a lot of these questions try to get at not just what shapes culture but how how particular like how thick is your organization with sort of intentional symbols that um that would show the outsider what you're about yeah and so, so uh, questions three and four really play into that same space in terms of the full engagement. And then the uh, tell me just a little bit more about this power of the particular. What is that? Yeah. So that um, you know, I I I was uh, early on. I wasn't sure if that should be included um, because it doesn't seem necessarily moral in nature. But I'm just struck. Maybe it comes out a little bit of situating this project in our modern times mm-hmm. where, you know, everything can be a little relativistic and anything goes and you you don't want to ever be exclusive. You know, all of those kind of cultural pressures, I guess you could say. Uh, and I was just struck by that may be as you know that that may be the times we live in and there's there are times to be really inclusive and that's great but i was i was struck by this the communities where people feel most attached and where they feel like this camp for instance had a huge impact on me i went for 15 summers in a row or this dutch reformed community you know we did potlucks every week there's a whole mm-hmm. series of lingo there's you know frankly the lds church <laughs> there, there's just there are there are in, and the military falls to this again. Um, I happened myself to have gone to a college uh, that I meet people from that my alma mater today and they're it's very easy to identify them as oh you you know you're a weedy you went yep. <laughs> and there's some colleges there whereas there's some who went to say michigan state or you know even if you identify with the sports team it's not necessarily as obvious so there's just something here about those institutions that are self-confident in who they are tend to be willing to stick out a little bit and make either make some truth claims or um just be willing even to be a little bit odd or counter-cultural yeah. and people actually want that if they're going to stick to it and not just let it be sort of the water that runs over you in our anything goes world. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I want to jump to uh, a couple because I want to drill down on on these uh, and and it's questions 9, 10 and 11 uh, because you get into this element of struggle and growth, uh, vulnerability and accountability and then reflection. Uh, because I think all of those are, it's a, just a really interesting axis there, um, including that uh, we often talk about it in terms of courageous vulnerability. Um, and so tell us about kind of that set of three in terms of struggle and growth, the vulnerability and accountability, which does take some courage, and then that ability to reflect. In talking to many, many, many people early on in this, I would ask them, like, how has your character been shaped? And um, people from all walks of life, high, low, medium, you know, just 
whoever, and as human beings, and they would invariably tell me a story or a set of stories, and I started, again, to notice a pattern. And um, again, this isn't science, this is <laughs> journalism. And the pattern was they would often, when they talked about how their character was shaped, they would mention three ingredients uh, somehow in their story. One would be uh, an impressionable, sort of an authority, a loving authority figure in an impressionable time of their lives. The second was an experience of struggle or suffering that forever after marked them. And then the third was a growing awareness at some point in their lives of a context greater than themselves that they wanted to serve. And I think with especially with that second one, it's sort of, I guess, tried and true psychology. It's true moral philosophy that you can't grow without um, pain to some degree. Like the change always involves, as a human being, change usually involves some degree of pain, small or large. Right. And, um, you know, there are, there are, of course, instances of people living hermit lives or at various points in history who have, who have grown, and we do grow alone. But the, the idea here behind trying to encourage organizations or certain kinds of communities to provide a space for your struggles to be um, given voice to in in the context of a group that not only listens to it and kind of can help you interpret it, but also both correct you like they do at the other side academy or, you know, give you a reason for hope, help you find an alternative pathway. Organizations that kind of provide space for that, it immediately opens the horizon for you to grow sort of safely and likely in a discerned sort of in, in a healthy way um, versus just spiraling out into the own abyss of your own thoughts. So this <laughs> right. is an attempt just, I just, whether you're talking about 12-step programs um, you know, obviously AA has this like from the beginning of their model to integrate this or whether, you know, I think it probably looks differently um, in a big multinational corporation. You need to be careful because there are, you know, actually I wonder sometimes with these questions that they've perceived interest from the corporate world. But I think especially these three, you noted struggle and growth, vulnerability and accountability and reflection. I've sometimes wondered, are these all a little bit too rooted in a familial metaphor? Like, do these only work in kind of family-like mm. um, context? Not so much. How do you deal with the boundaries between personal and professional? So that's, that's an issue of sort of right. what civil sphere <laughs> we're talking about. But I do think everyone longs, safety is a word that's gotten bandied about and from by both the right and left in the last couple of years. And so I was hesitant to use it. But I think just this issue of is do do you feel um, like you can trust the people around you to respond to a moment when you're not fully confident that you you've made the right choice or yeah. I, I just think we all you know you need you need guides yeah, <laughs> in your sure. weakest moments that's right that's right and I actually think uh, we, we'll save this conversation for another day but I I do believe every organization whether it's uh, for profit or not or you know helping in the community whatever it is uh, I think they all can go uh, through those questions in a in a significant way um, oh, and good. and as we come down the the home stretch here, um, I, I want to ask you two final questions. And and first is, uh, you know, what surprised you in this in this process? What was what was kind of your aha moment uh, as you took on? This is a massive project um, that I know mm-hmm. you invested countless hours and uh, a whole lot of travel in. <laughs> Uh, what, yeah. what was what was surprising to you? What was the oh my gosh this this could actually make a difference moment? I mean, on a more discouraging note, I would say that an early surprise was that character is a very loaded word, and mm-hmm. I think that's 
fair, but it just, I yeah. was, whether there were just, it was, I didn't expect it to be such a controversial space. <laughs> so whether the divides were happening, frankly, along left and right between men and women, whether you were wasp, like a white, you know, middle class who was harking back to a Boy Scouts era. Right. Uh, not a Boy Scouts still exists, but there's baggage associated with character as being sort of extreme form of like colonialism if you're talking to certain people, but also sort of a little more mildly just a form of like cultural, forcing cu- cultural assimilation to a certain kind of cultural, like a, a narrow cultural view of what the good life is. So it turns out, you know, we're in a very morally pluralistic time. And I and I anticipate, I sort of anticipate that, but I didn't, I would make some phone calls and, and people would respond really harshly like, oh, I don't like that word character. It's so judgmental or it's religiously imperialistic or anyway. So so that was a surprise in kind of a, oh dear, I have my work cut out for me. Like, <laughs> right, right. How do I, how do I redeem the word? Um, and should it be redeemed? But then on the flip side, you know, there is, a huge, and I think this is just very human, but particularly today, I live in D.C., we don't exactly have really like morally uplifting discourse being perpetuated, in my opinion, by <laughs> a variety of public leaders exactly. um, or frankly, big institutional, you know, I'm not going to blame the media on this show, but, um, you know, there, there, there's, um, there's just, I think people are feeling so pressured and tribalism has strengthened that there's just not a lot of edifying moral clarity or moral mm-hmm. uplift even. And mm-hmm. yet if you can speak to I think the human, the sort of soul's longing to to seek goodness and to be in harmony with one's neighbor and to be stretched and to learn new things. Um, I was just, I was surprised at how once I was able to get past the word wars around character, mm-hmm. how many people right now feel like this is so timely and that whether we're talking about communities that shape character, whether we're talking about, I don't, whether we're talking about helping people with mental health, like there's sure. just so many ways in which there's some, there's pain in the country right now and pain is purifying. And there, there's something about moral longing that people want they want to have conversations about their own and how mm-hmm. they could maybe foster an environment that encourages that moral longing to grow and so you know some will suggest religion as an answer some will suggest um, national service for everyone as an answer but there's like this civic awakening there's no there's very little complacency I would say sure. and um, that was really encouraging that's great therefore what Well, the last thing we do on this show, Anne, is, is there for what? <laughs> so people have been listening to us for 25 minutes now, and uh, they're going to read your book, The Fabric of Character. Uh, what What's the there for what that you hope people will take away from this? How do you hope they will think different? What do you hope they'll do different uh, as a result of listening today and as, as a result of uh, reading The Fabric of Character? Yeah, well, thank you. Um Gosh, I just hope that um, something about the stories in the book and maybe these questions resonate, even if no one has ever been to the Other Side Academy or um, the, 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 the a, a notion that rituals are a good thing that, that we actually all have in our lives in different forms. If, if somehow what has been written here, which is really, in some ways, I don't feel like it's my book. It's just a mirror to the most inspirational <laughs> uh, moral exemplars institutionally and individually I found out there. I hope that um, people find resonance with their own context and then can like turn their eye to their own context, be they 
politicians or company leaders mm. or um, a cleaning woman or a mom or a dad or a coach or a grandparent or a name, you know, name, name your role. And we all likely have multiple roles in society that we would look at those roles and the institutions or communities or organizations that they find their life within and um, be more considerate, like figure sort of that they would generate in us uh, sort of a practical ability to answer these 16 questions better. And so that's sort of on the individual reader level. And then more broadly, obviously, I would love to uh, see kind of a a self-confident movement, for lack of a better word, um, or community, really, of donors, doers, and thinkers kind of um, come around these questions and see them as not prescriptive, but very invitational, that they would mm-hmm. see them sort of like as a fresh way to understand the good without being, that you don't have to be cynical about the good or, um, right. or think it's all G-rated, but that <laughs> there's, um, that, um, you know, that, that ultimately we all, I think we all desire to be part of um, communities that give us a sense of meaning and that require something of us, invite us into, invite us to our highest selves. Fantastic. Um, and that people could creatively figure out how to sow, the, sow an, a fresh moral ecosystem for our time. Ann Snyder, author of Fabric of Character, thanks so much for joining us today on Therefore What. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on deseretnews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?